You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Find more great shows like this at wearelibertarians.com. Here today by uh, Suhag Shukla. She's the executive director and co-founder of the Hindu American Foundation. Uh, Suhag, how are you doing? I'm doing good, uh, considering <laughs> the current state of the world. Uh, I am blessed with a roof over my head and a job that allows me to actually not just continue working, but um, I'm actually busier than I have ever been. It, it, some people, I find that, that that's what's going on. I uh, work at a buffet myself, so unfortunately, I have I have way too much time on my hands these days. We are very much shut down. Uh, right. <laughs> well, but, I hope things go back to normal for you. Yeah. You know, uh, that'll be great. Although my schedule wouldn't be as quite as open as it is now. And and that, that lets me talk to people like you and more interesting things and finally get projects like this that I've always wanted to do underway. Uh, to get the, so today we're, um, we're obviously being part of the Hindu American foundation. We're going to talk about Hinduism and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, most people are probably a bit unfamiliar with it. I will admit most of my podcast is uh, Midwestern, you know, white males that are probably familiar with some form of Christianity or atheism or, you know, maybe, you know, Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, but, but you know, maybe some Catholic in there. But I think Eastern religion tends to be a little mind-blowing for them. So just, I, I guess, give me a general uh, general. I don't know if I want to say sales pitch, but what would you say to somebody who's kind of discovering, you know, oh, Hinduism, what's all that about? What would you say? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is prepare to have your mind blown further. Uh, <laughs> so for, for Hinduism, you know, when when your when your inquiry came in, I'm like, well, this is what it's all about. Um, freedom is central to not only the teachings and practices of Hinduism, but its end goal. So when we talk about freedom, uh, it it is uh, so so um, interwoven into everything: the philosophy, the teachings, the stories that we're told to kind of exemplify some of these abstract uh, teachings, as well as the practices. So uh, I'm excited to share with you uh, how freedom kind of fits in. Hinduism. And I don't know if you want me to just kind of first give an overview and then we can, you know, flesh through any questions that you have or what would you prefer? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I, talk, uh, yeah, there go. I was muted. I talk way too much as is. Okay. So if you are ready with an overview, hit me with the overview and I'll, and yeah, I'll, I'll nitpick it. Okay, great. <laughs> so as I was thinking through your question, you know, what is the role of freedom in Hinduism or what's the Hindu perspective on freedom? Well, first of all, let me just caveat by saying that there's great diversity um, within Hinduism. So there's different schools of thoughts. There's different uh denominations, if you will. And so what I'm presenting is going to kind of be a a mix of kind of Hinduism 101, but also my own personal uh, perspectives and understandings of these teachings. So when I thought about freedom, I really came down to kind of four different levels in which uh, the theme of freedom comes up. First is just religious freedom. Because essential to Hinduism is pluralism or this understanding or acknowledgement that there are going to be a multitude of paths to discover, to understand, and to relate to the truth, capital T, or God, or divine, or something greater than us. And so this journey uh, towards understanding whatever it is about the universe and our place in it mandates religious freedom. And so 
the the core uh, kind of um, adage or or prayer that kind of encapsulates this teaching is something that comes from the Veda, which is our oldest sacred uh, texts, and it is ekam sat vipraha bahuda vadanti, that the truth is one, the wise call it by many names. And where this stems from is this understanding that each of us are individuals. We have our different likes and dislikes. We have different personalities. We come from different cultures. So not only does the way in which we connect with one another differ and, um, and it's, it's driven by kind of our own worldviews, but we connect to the higher um, in, in our own personal ways as well. And so there's this uh, acknowledgement or this understanding that in order for people to be able to find their path, there has to be this freedom uh, for people to be able to explore and to experience. And that's always going to be an individual experience. So that's kind of the first level of, of freedom. The other three are kind of connected. First is ultimate freedom. And the second is individual freedom. And the third is inner freedom. So I'm going to go through all three of those. And, and hopefully I won't lose you or your audience. And feel free to interrupt me, uh, you know, if you have any questions or I'm not clear. No, uh, yeah, you bet. I mean, even right now. So what I remember is when reading through some of the, you know, the sacred texts. I haven't been through all the Vedas, but I did read the Mahabharata. Uh -huh. And I just remember reading and saying, when you leave, I guess when you read the Bible, you're very used to, you get a story and then they're like, here's the moral and here's the law. And I remember just reading it and saying, well, I got a story. I think I might've missed a law, a doctrine or something like that. And so it was a, it was a series of stories, which are very compelling. But I almost took away from it. I, I'm like, I, I have to talk to an expert now to understand, <laughs> kind of dissect what I wrote. You know, it's like it's like reading The Great Gatsby and just being like, I don't know, the main character was a little odd, I guess, you know, without really understanding kind of the underlying either symbolism or characterization. And you know what I mean? Like, I just felt right. like I, I, I was lost afterwards. And I think it's just, it was a very different way. It, 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 this happened a lot when I was reading Eastern literature for the first time entirely right. i mean even even russian literature you, it's really easy to get carried away with crime and punishment and say oh this is fascinating oh was there was there some other message going on other than Don't right. kill, kill your neighbor i guess like i didn't right, get exactly that. so i think that what you kind of identified in your um introduction to to the way in which the Eastern traditions uh, grapple with truth and teachings. I think I'll kind of touch upon those points um, when I talk about individual freedom. Uh, so first, let me just talk about ultimate freedom. And this is really the ultimate goal of spiritual life and human birth in Hindu thought. And that is moksha or freedom from the cycle of birth and rebirth. So one of the common things that people, even if they're unfamiliar with Hinduism, they know that Hinduism has this uh, concept of reincarnation. So let me talk about that a little bit. So what reincarnation is, that it is that all li living beings are embodied souls or embodied life principle. And this life principle is called Atma. And it is that energy or atma that animates the material with life. So when the material or physical body is born, it grows, it matures, it ages, and ultimately it perishes. But what Hindu teachings say is that that atma or the life principle is eternal. It's unchanging, ever joyous, ever loving, ever free. So what happens is that once that life principle takes material form, it animates it with life, and ultimately the body perishes, but that life principle continues on to a next birth. And so you begin this cycle of birth, death, birth, rebirth, birth, death, rebirth, time and time again. So physical birth takes place according to the laws of karma. 
Karma is another common uh, understand, or at least common word that's associated with Hinduism. Um, it's not always um, understood accurately necessarily, or at least it has a very surface understanding, um, basically a kind of what comes around goes around, but it's a little bit deeper than that. So what the law of karma says is that when a person or a living being dies, the associated life principle is going to be attracted to a, a next birth that provides circumstances that will help that soul kind of balance out their karmic needs and their debt. And all of this is towards this goal of advancing spiritually. And so ultimately, once you achieve kind of spiritual perfection, your that that soul or life principle escapes this cycle of birth and death because birth and death comes with suffering. So first I should clarify, since we're talking about freedom, is that karma and the cycle should not be confused with fatalism, which it oftentimes is, or destiny. That while destiny is partially at play because your past karma or your past actions shape your present circumstances, we have the free will to shape our future through the way that we respond to our present circumstances. And I hope that that makes sense. It sure does. Yeah. So, I mean, it, choice. And, yeah, and it would make sense to say, oh, you're going to pay for your choices if your choice is really a phantom Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you can, you can see that in the short term, right? Like right. I make the decision to not prepare for an interview, say, or I make the decision not to prepare for an exam. I'm a student. Well, the fruits of that action or inaction, I'm going to see pretty immediately, right? That sure. I'm not going to do well on a test. So you see that in the short term, but with, with the law of karma and when you put it into this larger metaphysical framework, that consequence, I may uh, face that consequence in this lifetime or I might face it in a future lifetime. So that's kind of the, the longer uh, spectrum of time that, uh, that kind of uh, is present in, in the Hindu tradition. So the law of karma is that every thought, word, and action has a reaction or outcome. So when an individual's thoughts, words, or actions are positive or selfless or righteous, they're going to experience positive effects or rewards. And if their actions are negative, let's say they're lying or stealing or hurting people, that result's going to be negative. So what happens is that every lifetime is seen as an opportunity to pay off our past karmic debt. Um, so if we acted uh, harmfully in a past life or even in the past of our current life, we always have that opportunity to improve ourselves and, and to kind of pay off that debt. And so ultimately, when our karmic balance is zeroed out, we achieve the ultimate goal of spiritual life, and that is moksha or freedom from the cycle of birth and rebirth. So how do we get there? And this is where I think I'm going to touch upon some of the things that you saw, that you saw these stories, but you didn't see a list of rules. You right. didn't see law. You didn't see, uh, you know, a, a set of commandments. And so my tiny brain still just wants somebody to like spank me when I do something wrong. <laughs> you know, I just, I, I'm looking for the constant parent. <laughs> I think, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I do want to let you progress, but before I get into that, just, just to, to try to rephrase it to make sure I have an understanding of, sure. of, of karma and, and its relationship to your atma, that, that the idea isn't so much that karma, because I think the way we use it is kind of like, well, you did something wrong, so you're going to get hit by a car later. The idea right. is that like when you talk about having a debt, I, I think the way that I think of it is more of a, a spiritual perfection. And to say mm -hmm. that you might not get to all that in this life. And, and that's probably pretty understandable. Perfection is a, a pretty high goal, right? To, to be able to say, I have nothing hindering me, nothing holding me down, nothing holding me back. We all make these choices, some of us even from a young age, that kind of restrict us and, and put us in these 
situations where I say, oh, I made this mistake when I was younger and I'm just paying for it for the rest of my life. But the idea isn't so much paying because it's a type of black and white punishment, but to say you're going to pay for it so that you learn to overcome that. So it's no longer an imperfection in your Atma or soul, right? Would that, would that be yeah, about right? No, I think so. It's, it's kind of about, not kind of, but it is about acceptance of the past that we know and maybe the past that we don't know and knowing that we can improve from there, right? We are not victim to our circumstance. And so that's the freedom that we have, uh, you know, in terms of being able to continue to evolve as, as people. Um, yeah. And so how do we do that? Yeah. That's where the concept of dharma comes in. And dharma is, uh, it's commonly translated as law but it is not law. And like I said, it's not a list of do's and don'ts and it's not a set of commandments. So what is dharma? Dharma is one's obligation to act in accordance with one's essential nature. And remember, I talked earlier about this concept that every being, every living being is a vessel for that eternal, unchanging, pure, ever joyous life principle or soul. So innately, Hinduism says that we are good, that we are righteous, that we want to serve others, be all compassionate, all loving. So what Dharma calls upon us to do is to remember what our root is, what our essence is, and engage with the world from that knowledge. So acting in accordance with your Dharma is having your every thought, your word, and your actions strive towards contentment, towards forgiveness, towards kindness, self-restraint, compassion, humility, all of these positive attributes. So when you go back to those stories that you read, that's what we were looking for, that when characters are faced with a difficult decision, so like the Mahabharata, there are a number of characters and what we find in in sacred texts which i actually find uh comforting is that they're very human you don't have like the perfect person who always makes the right choices you actually have these individuals who are faced with very difficult decisions um or problems rather and they're faced sometimes with two you know the lesser of two bad decisions, or they have a good decision and a bad decision. And we can see, um, we can kind of relate uh, with with their struggle because we're faced with that sort of thing as well um, in our day-to-day -day decisions. So um, for instance, you know, just the, the very premise, the Mahabharata is of course one text, but within that text, you have the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the, the most widely read Hindu texts. And they're... I pronounce these all so badly. Like oh, I, I'm just, I'm like uh, the Bhagavad Gita. Like I think it, I just, I, I am so syllable by syllable with them. <laughs> no, 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 that no worries. At least you're trying. Uh, but you know, with the Bhagavad Gita, the very premise of this conversation, you have Arjuna, who's a warrior prince, and you have Krishna, who is considered. Um, you know, God incarnate, who's at this time, God has come to the earth in human form to bring about justice and righteousness in an age where um, there has been denigration of values. So Arjuna is this prince and he's, there's two feuding royal families. And Arjuna is kind of on the side of the righteous brothers and he's fighting this other family who happened to be his cousins. He, it's So he's on the battlefield. This is the entire scene of the Bhagavad Gita and where the Bhagavad Gita takes place, this conversation. And Arjuna is looking across the battlefield and he's a warrior. He has a responsibility to, to his, his people. And he says to Krishna, I, I can't do this. I can't kill my kinsmen. Um, it would be wrong for me to uh, kill and engage in all this violence and nothing good is going to come out of this. And so there he is faced with a difficult choice. Does he kill his kinsmen in order to uphold righteousness and order and bring um, you know, freedom and justice to his people? 
And he's saying, well, maybe I'd be better off not taking this difficult decision. So that's what these stories, ultimately he's told, no, it's your responsibility as someone who has, uh, has the obligation to take care of your people as a ruler. It is your duty and obligation to fight, even if it means that you have to um, fight against your own kin. So these stories very often uh, demonstrate how difficult acting in accordance with our essential nature or acting in accordance with a cosmic order of goodness and righteousness can be difficult. And that's why you don't find necessarily these rules. You'd certainly find values um, that are elevated to a higher status. So non-harming, kindness, truth, forgiveness. And it's our goal to, in our day-to-day, moment-to-moment interactions with the world, make the decision to um, to choose the quality of our thoughts and our words and actions and elevate them to a way that serves the greater good. So this individual freedom that we're given, and this is kind of my last um, last kind of overview before we can have kind of a discussion or, or you know, a conversation about anything that's come to mind is inner freedom. So our individual freedom to make those choices that comes from our ability to be able to control, to calm our mind and to, um, to guide the quality and direction of our thoughts, words, and actions. So what is inner freedom? So I consider this uh, Swami Chinmayananda as my guru. He's no longer, um, he's no longer, he passed away uh, many, many years ago. But what he said, and I, and I love this quote, is not to do what you feel like doing is freedom. I'm going to repeat that again. Not to do what you feel like doing is freedom. So what does that mean? It means, first of all, freedom is the opposite of bondage. So what Hindu teachings say is that bonding, bondage rather arises from our identification with the body. So we, on an intellectual may, level, may know that we are that life principle and this body is just temporary. Yet we engage with the world as if this body is permanent. And so we have this illusion that I need to do whatever I can to make this body happy. So that leads to um, greed, that leads to overconsumption, it leads to hoarding, it leads to this just kind of selfish way of being in the world. This is mine. I want more of this. I want I want not only I want more of this, but I need to grab this so that others don't get it. And so you start becoming a slave to your likes and dislikes, to your cravings, um, to your addictions. And so, you know, when we when we look at someone, say, who has an addiction, are they really free in the way that they're living their lives? They're not. No. Yeah. Right? They, they're, yeah. They're very much, they need, they, they take those things that were previous wants and they become needs. Exactly. Exactly. And so what the Hindu tradition says is the way in which that we can gain inner freedom um, in order to then individually act in a way that always serves the greater good is to gain control of our senses that through spiritual practices such as yoga, and when I'm talking about yoga, I'm not just talking about physical postures, but I'm talking about the path of selfless action or the path of loving devotion and gratitude, the path of knowledge, the path of contemplation. All of these spiritual practices basically strengthen our ability to use our intellect to drive our choices um, or, or our, to be more mindful in our choices rather than our instinct and our cravings to drive our, our choices. And so I, I use a, always a simple, uh, a simple example when I'm, you know, explaining these concepts, I, I teach, um, Hinduism to high schoolers, um, at our local community, um, institution. And so I take the, uh, the, uh, example of food. So, Let's just think about how our body engages with the world. 
our body tells us we're hungry. Our stomach starts growling. Now, what I could do is if I just go with the lower mind and say, okay, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat a chocolate bar because that's what I feel like eating. Um, it's not exactly the best thing that I could do for my body. The intellect or a mindful approach to taking that signal from my body that, hey, I'm hungry would be, okay, what does my body need to function in this world? What does my body need to be its best to serve a greater good, to serve my family, to serve my society, to serve my nation. And then I'm going to have my choices be driven by that higher level to say, well, you should probably eat a well-balanced, nutritious meal. So it can be as simple as that in our day-to-day -day engagement with the world. And of course, it can go to more like life and death type choices like Arjuna was faced with. Do I kill do I kill my relatives for the greater good? And it's a difficult choice. But if we are able to control our senses, control those impulses through practice of yoga, um, these different types of way of, of engaging with the world, then we're going to be free um, from our monkey mind kind of driving the process. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that overview. That's uh, that, that, that. Definitely goes to answer a lot of the questions that I would have had, uh, <laughs> but it but it's uh, it's good to get them out of the way. Now there are a few things. So so going back to the Dharma portion of things, mm -hmm. this is something that I remember talking about with in school, and this is something that that was hotly um, that help was helped fixed through through kind of Hindu revolutions when mm -hmm. when they had a uh, there were people who would abuse the idea of Dharma and say and this. This happens a lot in different faiths. I'm sure you Christians out there will completely relate to say that your dharma is now to serve me. This is your duty. This is forfeit your moral obligations in exchange for a temporal obligation. Hmm. And that's something that I think is important to iron out, especially for someone who's liberty leaning and, and loves freedom. And, you know, they hear this, this, I, they, the word obligation, I just kind of see them twitch in their eyes a little bit and they're like, hmm. ah, I don't want to do that. You know, and, and it, it's something that's been abused. But when you have these very authentic Hindu scholars, they would say, well, this has actually been abused. Your moral obligation is actually to oppose what they are saying your obligation is, as opposed to fulfilling whatever you're forfeiting your, your moral obligation and you're putting it in the hands of somebody else's moral obligation. That's just one thing that I... I remember learning about when when I studied the history of it and said that this is something that we've had more understanding on. You know, I think a lot of people see their their faith get hijacked in some way by by bad actors. And thankfully Hinduism I think is shaken so free of those bonds people hardly even think about it anymore. But it's but Hindu people spiritually have had problems with government before. <laughs> Um, sure. so, some pretty notable problems. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so I was just going to say that I think, you know, obviously words have different meanings, but I think that this whole framework is one that's obligation based as opposed to rights based. And I don't want to, uh, we need to think of that more, not in a political framework, um, but I mean, you can think of it in a public, uh, in a political framework, but just as just as one's way of living in society or, or even in your family, I can say as a parent, I have a right to, or, or my children can say for the, let's just take one example. And hopefully I can think through this cause I'm doing this on the fly, Good. but as a parent and child, my child can say, I have a right to you taking care of me. And or I can shift the gaze and say, as a parent, I have an obligation to take care of my child, right? It's the same relationship that we're talking about, 
but the framing of dharma or that are it's one in which an obligation i believe uh gives you more of the agency in how you're going to act as opposed to a right is something that in some sense you're going to have to depend on the outside for we're st- we're still talking about the same relationship right. but it's just shifting shifting the vantage point if that makes sense this, this is awesome i think philosophically this is so important because i think we always have arguments about what our rights are people will disagree all the time about mm-hmm. saying I, I think a lot of people are like well sure life and liberty we kind of start getting in the gray area around property and then we hit the muddy waters with right healthcare and education and, st- and and everything like that but when you say well okay maybe maybe we can we can disagree all day about whether you have a right to education or healthcare. But mm-hmm. at some point, the, the water becomes much clearer when you're a doctor and you have an injured person in front of you and say, do you have a moral obligation? Right. You know, to say that as opposed to saying a legal government, right? This is an individual mandate, I guess, to say that, well, if you're going to accept the role of healer, then you should heal. If you're accepting the role of builder, you should build, you know, and, and to say, you know, because a child, it's hard for them to argue for their rights. But as a parent, your obligation is more apparent than their knowledge of their rights. Right. And, and even, even if we say, like, if we're talking about education, if we as a society decide that we're going to collectively um, educate the next generation, right? We've made that decision. Certainly we've created a right to education, but with that comes an obligation for us to follow through on what we said we're going to do. Right. And so, um, it, it makes it a two way street, right? I mean, in some way we do talk about, we don't just talk about, well, Unfortunately, I feel that sometimes the the political conversations that we have today are so focused on rights and not as much on responsibilities. And so you can use, I think, obligation and responsibility interchangeably in that sense that it, it becomes less about us versus them, which I think too often frames that conversation around rights. It sure does. Uh, you know what I mean? Versus yep. <laughs> when we're talking about obligation um, or, or responsibility, and perhaps that's a word that people might be a little bit more comfortable with, then it makes it, I don't know, more constructive. No, that's fantastic. I think in when we talk about libertarianism, one of the overlapping, sometimes synonymous words is individualism. We think about it in terms of individual mandates and, and personal morality and, and ability to dictate as opposed to trying to derive this from other people. Um, I do have a question for you from the audience. Yeah. It is my Uncle Tom. Um, uh-huh. I'm going to post it on screen here. If our core life force is pure, ever joyful and good, what causes people in each reincarnation to do evil? Is there another spiritual force at play or is it the flesh contaminated in some way? It's um, contaminated is probably a strong word, but it's it's basically rooted from our uh, identification with the body. Right. As soon as we start. If I live in the acknowledgement that I am life principle then I'm going to very uh, be very much in awareness of the fact that you also are life principle, that the animals and the earth around me are life principle, and therefore I'm going to treat them the way I would want to be treated. But the minute I start attaching myself to just the physical form, so this is me, I'm Suhag Shukla, this is my, these are my sons. This is my husband. I am going to only take care of these people. That's where those evil propensities start emerging in terms of selfishness, um, in terms of greed, in terms of jealousy and anger. So we're not talking about necessarily a outward um, evil force, but evil that emerges as a result of ignorance of, of our core essential nature and, and how that should drive how we engage with others. Sure. So like a, I guess a, an example to discuss would be that the 
two-year-old that takes the the sucker from his one-year-old sister and and it's just he's thinking about himself and his wants right it hasn't expanded yet he's not necessarily malicious because he doesn't acknowledge this other person's sorrow or hurt he just acknowledges his own want and desire right and this is something it seems like we have to relearn every cycle right to to, exactly exactly and the thing is that you know that child uh you know there might be a certain level of of innocence, you know, because they don't necessarily know. But when we see adults doing that, right? I mean, the, this current crisis is a good example that you have uh, people who hoarded these masks that are so necessary for, for healthcare workers. And now, you know, they're giving them back, but it's an example of, you know, oh, I need to take care of my own or I have to do something that's going to benefit me. Uh, And so what you lose sight of is the greater good. Yes, there was very much a, uh, I think everybody can relate to it, even if not with the masks. I think everybody saw the grocery store and they said, hang on, everybody. If we all all behave normally, this thing wouldn't be empty right now, right? Like if, if we didn't make a rush on it, nobody would be struggling, maybe create a few hours where the compromised might be able to go, you know, something like that. But that doesn't mean we need to take all the toilet paper right now, you know, and <laughs> this is something that. That's such a good point. I mean, I, I was, I, I've been limiting my my trips to the grocery stores these days, but because I'm only going once a week, I, I was going through, um, you know, the, it seems that the fresh produce is there in plenty, which is great. I'm a vegetarian, but <laughs> it's the canned foods or frozen foods and things like that that are really limited. And only slowly are those supplies coming. And they have signs up that say, limit yourself to two. And I was wondering, like, what choice would have I made um, if the sign wasn't here? And I have noticed that where where there weren't those signs, my instinct is to not take, and I'm not elevating myself. It's just in terms of food. Maybe that's just not something that I'm overly concerned with, but my instinct is let me not take too much because there's going to be someone else who needs it as much and I can survive without this. I'll find other ways, right? So we're faced with those types of decisions every moment, um, whether we're in a crisis or not. And the idea, I guess the concept behind the panic is, well, maybe I trust some people, but I don't trust everybody else to not go primitive. So I guess I have to go primitive too. It, right. It's it's almost like their rush, their panic creates a panic in me or a bad action in me because I'm so focused on them and their actions. And well, they're not going to feel any obligation for me. So I'm not going to feel any obligation towards them. And, it, you know, when we talk about these cycles, it's kind of a downward cycle as opposed mm-hmm. to having the relationship with our communities where if everybody looks around, looks at each other and they say, well, I'm thinking of other people as well when I'm grocery shopping, it, it becomes a very different thing, but it's, it, it's so hard to picture that culture. I think that's a, that's a libertarian culture. That's where we want to get, but it's so hard to picture it. I, I think, I think we, we have that impulse in enough people um, or at least I like to think so <laughs> that we do. But, you know, this idea that um, the temptation to go kind of, uh, what was the word you used? Primal uh, is is there. The Hindu tradition has um, a wonderful um, symbolism in it. So when you see images of different gods and goddesses, especially the goddesses, they're very often... Uh, shown seated on a lotus. Now, the lotus flower is something that um, it's this beautiful flower that grows in kind of mucky water, but the petals have this kind of waxy um, characteristic to it. And so it repels the mud. So what we're often told as children, when we look at these images, each one of those images have symbolism that holds some of these um, life lessons or, or moral values and things. So what we're told about the lotus is that we should be like the lotus, that the lotus is able to be in this muck 
but still rise above it to not be affected by the negative behaviors around us, right? The greed or the lust or the hoarding that we have the ability through discernment and through knowledge and through higher thinking to uh, make the right choices and to remain untouched by that negative impulse that might be surrounding us. Yeah, that's, uh, it, it is so hard because I know nobody exists on an island, right? And so it's hard for us to visualize what it would be like to say, you know, what does my soul look like? Because I think it's so hard to picture yourself without outside forces. I think as a, as a male, I tend to be very ego driven. I realized that when I was younger, because people would ask me, Hey, you know, who are you? What about you? And I'm like, Oh, I won these sports and I did these things and I accomplished these things. And I have this family as opposed to being very in touch with my personal ID, my, but who I was, right? Like I am a very, I wouldn't describe myself in terms of, well, I'm very introspective and I'm thoughtful and I'm kind, you know, these, I, I, I kind of got away from describing my soul and would just describe accomplishments, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's, it's very much a looking at, at things around me as opposed to myself. And it's hard to, I guess, be like the Lotus and blossom up when you're focusing on everybody else's environment, except for yours, you know, and, or everybody else's, how they're blossoming as opposed to your own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh- I also want to say just in terms of like that reminder, you said that, you know, we oftentimes forget our interconnectedness. I mean, this, this current pandemic is, is been such a stark reminder of, of our, I mean, we have a single threat that is defining life around the planet. And so the Hindu tradition has this another adage um, that is Vasudhaiva Kutumbakam, that the world is one family. And when we identify with the body and then allow ourselves to let that identification drive our choices, we very quickly forget that shared divinity. And um, in many ways, uh, this pandemic to me, serves as a reminder of that, not just of our interconnectedness with one another, um, whether, you know, this, this has been spread from one person to another, but also that the suffering that comes along with it is one that's shared. The solution of sheltering in place, washing our hands and, and being careful is forcing us Um, you know, you can think of it as, well, I'm taking care of myself, but you're in taking care of yourself. You're also taking care of others. So there are a lot of lessons um, or reminders that I've been um, really thinking about um, as, as we see kind of the world in some sense coming to a standstill. Yeah. I, I, I want to go back on that because I think what you said is very important. I, I think that with the, Humanity being your family. I think this Mm -hmm. is something that libertarians are so big on is this Mm anti-nationalism, this idea that the American people are more important than uh, you name it, any other country, country's people, you know, whether it be Mexico or China or wherever it is to just say, you know, well, these are American lives. They're more important. And I, and this isn't something I don't want to come off as anti-American. I think that every country struggles with this to some degree to say, these are our boys, you know, when a, when a world cup match soccer is lost, a lot of times I remember watching. And if you listen to the guys, they'll say, Oh, we had too much German blood sneaking over into our good Irish blood. And we had too much, you know, too many Africans on the team or too many Frenchmen over here. And you just say like, Oh, why can't you just, why can't it be about soccer right now? Right, right? Right. It's like, what is this, what is this, this nationalism kind of creeps us in it. Mm-hmm. up in us and we we feel a a pride or shame based on something that we kind of have no control over you know or something right. that we shouldn't feel pride and shame for um th- this idea that everyone is your family you know who's on your team well i'm trying to be on everybody's team i'm trying to do best by everybody we get into these tribal mentalities to say yeah. and i mean to bring it in within the scope of american politics to just say i mean let's be honest here we usually have pretty much two sides either us or them right. and we demonize the other side and deify the other side or mm-hmm. our side, whatever side we say, oh, that was the side that was right. This other side is the side that is wrong without seeing how similar they are for better or for worse. 
and to recognize it's like, hey, if you looked at these people like your brothers and sisters, maybe you'd be better off. Maybe all the whole country would be better off and more united and more ready to take care of these problems if we stopped fighting and not just... Oh, yeah not just ceasing fighting for the sake of fighting, but found a way to resolve these differences and find this connectedness between us all. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing with, you know, when we go to that root cause of evil that I think the question came from Tom, when we start identifying with the body, that's the first uh, layer of difference, right? Between the fact that, I am an embodied life principle and you are an embodied life principle, but ultimately that life principle is part of an underlying reality of life. So, and it doesn't just stop in the Hindu tradition. It doesn't just stop between people. So, you know, anything beyond just you and me, if we now then split ourselves on the basis of, well, you're male, I'm female. Oh, you're white, I'm brown. Oh, you're a libertarian, I'm something else. Oh, you're a Midwesterner, I'm an Easterner. Oh, you're of Caucasian background, I'm of, you know, Indic Caucasian background. I mean, we can, all of that, it's, it's just adding layers to that first misstep of ignorance, right? So it, it, it's all, um, I mean, it, you know, sometimes people say, oh, it sounds kumbaya, but I mean, let's look at, let's bring it back to something that we're all dealing with right now. Does this virus uh, discriminate be between like countries or, or genders? Uh, it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't care. Uh, and, and so, you know, that, that unity um, is there and we're the ones who just build up all these walls of identity that are, that are really, I mean, they're false identities. I remember post Columbine people were debating if it was a regional tragedy or a state tragedy or a global tragedy. And I'm like, well, I mean, can't we just say it's tragedy? I mean, why, why is it so important that we get the locality of it down? Right. I guess to say that this is exactly whose tragedy it is. I think it's okay to feel sorrow for what happened. Yeah, I think human tragedy, right. It's, 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 <laughs> it's a look at tragedy. And I mean, I, I think Hinduism goes a, a step further than like you said, it even transcends the human experience right. to saying, you know, that there are, when you see the pain in, somebody else's eyes. There was something when, when slavery was going around, when we first uh, were founded, the abolitionist, uh, abolitionists would say, I don't want to botch this phrase. It's very short, but it was, am I, am I not a brother and a friend or, or something like that? When you mm -hmm. looked at the pain in their eyes yeah. and they would say, does this, does this pain not look familiar to you when you would go through painful times? If you were ripped away from your family, would your eyes I, not look the same? Yeah. You know, and I, I think you would look into this and say, well, look at, you know, I mean, not to be stereotypical, but the cows, dogs, cats, when they are being in pain and tortured, there's a look in their eyes that is very relatable, even as a human being, even though we, we find a whole lot of differences between animals and people to say mm -hmm. that there is a common thread there to say when they experience fear and contentment and happiness and, you know, sometimes to a greater diversity than what we experience in our emotions is we kind of learn to contain them and they are very good at expressing them, I guess, a little more overtly, but you know, to, to say that there, there is some thread here to say that this is, why should we try to say this is my pain? And so it's more painful than your pain. And I think the more we say, this is our pain, this is a shared pain and give ourselves some moral obligation to each other to try and decrease the amount of that pain and fear and resentment to say that, isn't that our obligation to society, to, to each other, to say that, well, I, I, I can't control everything. I can't fix, like you said, I can't, I can't stop all my neighbors from buying up the toilet paper, but I can control my actions. Exactly. And maybe I can control, maybe not control, but I can share that enlightenment of my action with the people in my immediate sphere. Mm -hmm. And you find that there are certain, when we talk about this current pandemic, there are certain cities around the world that have that mentality a little bit better and didn't experience as nearly as many of the problems. They took action in right. some cases, even took drastic action, but they took it voluntarily. 
they took mm-hmm. it quickly and they all and, and it, it wasn't something that they they weren't looking to a higher power for answers they weren't looking to a lower power for answer answers i guess they looked to themselves we could say i guess that is some type of higher power but to say that they said what is my obligation in this situation to decrease the amount of pain and suffering, whether it be people getting fired from their jobs or losing their businesses or people getting sick and dying. I want to minimize that as much as possible and maximize, you know, that, that joy, that, that loving and freedom, you know? Right. Right. And that's why I find that an obligation framework is empowering as much as sometimes I think if we get caught up in the semantics of it, um, it, it can feel like, you know, if you start thinking of it as a debt, as opposed to our ability um, to, you know, to, you know, our ability to offer whatever we can, um, which is what we, we we do see where it is working, where things are working well, that's where you're seeing people come forward. I, you know, and oftentimes that people say, well, this is the best that America has to offer. This is us. But I would say that about humanity. We are seeing it world over where um, people are setting aside um, the, the great discomfort um, that a sacrifice of staying home and not going to work entails at a personal level um, uh, for the short term. And, and I think that, uh, that too shows us kind of that innate goodness um, that Hinduism teaches us is what is at our core. Yeah, I think uh, it's very much, uh, very much a, a higher. It's a very enlightened for uh, mindset to come at it from. I think when you talk with people these days, I think everybody has had a. I feel like everybody during this pandemic has had a fight with somebody else because of this. You don't see it enough my way. You don't see it enough my way. And I have tried it's and I'll admit it's even hard for me. Like I said, my primary job is working at a buffet and we're very shut down and people it's easy for me to feel piled on. Even if closing was the right thing to do, I feel very piled on because people are just saying, "Ah, you know, you, you, you don't care about people. You deserve to be out of business. You know, they don't care about my employees. They don't seem to care about my costs and expenses. And I mean, if they're even going to have a job to come back to at all, and they don't care about my situation. And it's very, it's tough to Mm -hmm. talk with some, with people that don't seem to display the same understanding, but at the same time to have a very, I mean, some people would call it Hindu. Some people would call it Christ-like. So we got, but it's like you said, a lot of minds, what are the quote you gave at the beginning? A lot of minds kind of talking about the same truth that this is, this is, you need to get past that and say, I am going to work for the benefit of everybody, even if they make me feel marginalized, put upon, even if they're critical of me in some way. Like I said, that lotus blooming in the muck, you know, things are really mucky right now, but this is kind of when you, you bloom in the, in the, I, I guess in the Christian scriptures, they have a parable of the fig tree. When things get hottest, that's when you are at your best, you know, that, that there seems to be an expectation among religious individuals, especially Hindu individuals, that when things are tough around you, that's when you do your best. That's when you shine your hardest. That's when, you know, when it's, it's nice to visualize this great society, but it's not going to happen if we let crises decrease our understanding. If we let these crises, there's always going to be crisis. There's always going to be difficulties and problems and wars and death and murder and all these terrible things. And if we say, well, these are reasons I can't, be enlightened right now and that I have to fall into something like, I mean, I said nationalism before, but falling into slavery, nationalism, uh, imperialism, some type of evil force, because you just say, well, it's a necessary evil. And so, well, if it's necessary now, this, this thing is going to keep popping up. So if you justify the evil now, you're always going to have some reason to justify that, that, that evil, that bad thing. Whereas I think what we're going for is, is a mentality that says you need to be above it now and then forever, especially if we want to get on this personal cycle, this individual cycle of saying, I need to rise above this. If you constantly sink in the muck, you're just going to constantly have to come back and try it again and get better and go over this again of saying, Oh, I need to learn that there's other people out there. Right. Well, and critical to this kind of framework is, uh, 
so when we engage in action, I mean, one of the critical teachings of or core teachings of the Bhagavad Gita is that we have a right or we have control over our efforts, but we do not have a right or control over the fruits of our effort. So meaning that, let let me take that parent and child um, example again. If my duty or my obligation is to do the best that I can as a mother for my child, I should be doing that without any expectations of, well, you know, now because I made this sacrifice, my son and, you know, should say thank you. Now, should he say thank you? Yes, that's part of his obligation. But I should not guide my actions um, through the motivation of what I might get out of them, if that makes sense. So if I am, you know, whatever it is, so I take care of my son or I make dinner for my family, uh, it should not be for compliments. I should make dinner for my family because that is my responsibility, my obligation, my duty uh, to make that dinner. But the minute I start letting the compliments say be the driving force of how I'm going to cook, I'm not necessarily, I'm going to be so concerned then with, um, with whether, sorry, hold on one second. My notifications. (laughs) You're just fine. You're popular. You're blowing up. Good. Good. <laughs> I thought I had them for an hour and um, they're just going nuts. Um, so there we go. Uh, where was I? So it, as, as soon as the the fruits of my actions or the fruits of my effort become the motivating factor for the way that I am acting as opposed to the obligation in my role uh, being the motivating factor, that's going to just bring unhappiness. It's going to bring dissatisfaction. And when you have that sort of dissatisfaction, then the motivation to continue to work in that selfless way um, diminishes. So if I you know, am banking on the fact that everyone's going to say, oh my goodness, you are such an amazing cook. You should start a restaurant. And that doesn't happen. Well, then I get unhappy. I am not, I don't take satisfaction or, or like a soul satisfaction in knowing that I did my best to make a nutritious dinner. So then the next time I'm making dinner, all of a sudden I'm like, well, last time they didn't even acknowledge anything. They didn't say thank you. And all of a sudden my entire present moment of preparing that meal is colored with all this negativity. Am I going to be bringing the best to whatever I'm making at that point? I mean, this is a very mundane example, but you can take it to, um, you know, I'm a lawyer, uh, how I might be um, taking on the work of a client. The minute we start fixating on the um, the reward, um, it's going to take away from our ability to bring our best effort towards, you know, whatever our responsibility is in that moment. I don't know if that that makes sense. Um, oh, totally. Uh, and never, never feel bad about a food analogy, by the way. <laughs> never feel bad because that, that is, I, I find that I, everybody eats, right? Everybody so does everybody eats, Exactly. That's why that's usually my fallback that everyone yeah. can understand that how many times do we, you know, like it, we, I can also take the, um, the, it, it's kind of like working in the zone. Let's, uh, you know, you said that, um, you know, you talk about sports and achievements and things like that, that oftentimes, um, you know, if you talk to the greatest athletes, when, when you ask them, what were you thinking at that moment? They're not thinking about a touchdown or a goal. They're talking about landing the ball where it needs to be. They're thinking about passing the ball in a way that it lands in the receiver's hands and then it's going to go forward, right? They're not thinking two steps ahead. They're thinking, this is my obligation. This is my responsibility. I have to take the ball and get it here. They're in a zone at that point and nothing else is distracting them. Then whether they score the touchdown or not, it doesn't matter because you're there to appreciate the play. So there's another, you know, maybe analogy um, to think about what it is to act in the world uh, because it's our responsibility or our duty and not be so concerned because we don't ultimately have control of what the fruit of that effort is going to be. 
Right. It's tempting to control outcomes. It's something you can influence, but something you can't create. We acknowledge that Dan Marino was amazing, but he didn't win the Super Bowl, but it's probably not his fault, right? I mean, there's a lot of outside factors and he can be the best factor that he can be. Maybe there's even other people who argue he could have been a better factor, but he certainly, unless you watch the game and examine his actions, and I guess, you know, unless you're him, you really or can't quite say, oh, this team's just terrible, or you can't just say, oh, it's all on him if you don't understand everything else going on. Well, I'm glad you brought up Dan Marino. My husband will be very happy. He's a he's a hardcore Miami Dolphins fan and, and believes that Dan Marino is the greatest ever. So <laughs> uh, I, I would I would very much say he got a, he got a rough shake, but uh, I don't feel too bad when you guys had so many decades of Don Shula and uh, the only perfect team. Still, you know, those 72 Dolphins, darn it. Um, (laughs) I did want to finish. I I know we're we're closing in our final minutes here, but there's something that I feel like I would be negligent to not talk about, um, especially when it comes to Hinduism, and that's their contribution to civil disobedience, which is something Mm -hmm. that has been very integral to libertarian philosophy, not just in the sense of what it means to be libertarian, but how one brings about uh, freedom, how one brings about liberty. Um, and, and civil disobedience is so core to it, especially when we, when we look at their very real practical applications. Um, some would just call it peaceful po- protests. Uh, right. They call it the doctrine of non-resistance and many things. But I guess what would you have to add about civil disobedience and its importance as far as functionally bringing about freedom? I mean, historically, of course, Mahatma Gandhi and and his um, satyagraha, uh, his um, you know nonviolent protest, was um, instrumental in in helping India gain its independence um, from the British. When you look at the core components of what that meant, it was deeply rooted in these teachings that we've been talking about for the past hour. Um, ahimsa or non-harming kindness, um, that how do we, there's a power, um, in, uh, non-harming that can help us exact change, um, and to get freedom. Now, now some people argue that, um, you know, had it been a different oppressor, perhaps it wouldn't have worked, but I think we've seen this model, uh, work, in different contexts, whether we look at apartheid, whether we look at the civil rights movement here, where, uh, you know, using these positive uh, values of truth, of, of nonviolence, I think that they strike to the core of what it is to be human. And even if you have the most corrupt, uh, you know, um, power structures in place at, at some point, um, this methodology has a way of breaking through. And that's why I think it's been so successful. It's one of those that I, I'm on a, I guess I could say I'm on a kick on it nowadays looking at, uh, right now I'm, I'm, I've been studying, uh, Tolstoy talked a lot about it too. And I, I just finished reading a book from him when he talked about, um, non-resistance. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, the, the entire philosophy is, is that there's two ways to disarm your oppressor. You can do it with sheer numbers. If you really have it, you can shoot your oppressors, I guess, and get rid of them. But odds are they wouldn't be your oppressors if you could do that. And so right. the, the other way to do it was, and I, I find this so fascinating, the history of it, but watching the correspondence between the, the crown saying, execute these people that resist and the people that were given the orders saying, I won't, I can't, yeah. I, I just morally can't. So the, and they've disarmed their enemies in a way that made their enemies voluntarily disarm. Right. To, to say that we're supposed to oppress you. Of course, they went through a lot of suffering before that. It didn't, it, I, I, I don't know of any successful revolution that really had no struggle. And so, of course, there were people who fired on them and, and did terrible things. But then you had the majority one, which was saying, I know... I was okay with doing this at first, but these people were very kind to me and healing to me. And so I'm not going to do it anymore. And you might feel justified morally in saying, well, we should throw rocks at them and shoot them. But 
does that work? Did that actually get you ahead functionally? And this is, I mean, you want to talk being kumbaya. This is where I feel like being a hippie straight up because I just say I would, I feel more safe in decreasing the number of my oppressors by making them not want to oppress me mm-hmm. than trying to be the best gunslinger in the world and shoot them all before one of them can shoot me. Like I just, I think for me, there's a, a, a better guarantee of safety in that than there is to try and I guess be violent. Right. Right. And, you know, kind of, and I don't know if this necessarily goes back to what you were saying, but some, something you said made me go back to this quote that I had said that not to do what you feel like doing is freedom. Right. So even nonviolent struggle, it takes a great deal of self-discipline and that comes from kind of internalizing these values of, of non-harming, internalizing the fact that at the end of the day, even if this person is wanting to harm me, that person has the same life principle in them that I have in me. And if there's a way to touch it, and the best way to touch it is through the best that is is available to us in terms of kindness, compassion, uh, love, dialogue, all these things. Um, but that takes a great deal of uh, discipline um, ahead of time, right? To get to that point of not, you know, what you said was, you know, you want to kind of just take a rock and throw it back at them, but that's not necessarily going to, not, it doesn't reflect necessarily inner freedom, nor is it going to gain you the outer freedom that you're seeking. Right. Well, Suhag, this has been an absolute delight. I, I, I thank you so much for being on the show and for, for sharing what you know. This is one of those, I think it's a risky venture for anybody that's <laughs> representing a religious movement when they say, sure, I'll, I'll come to a political interview, right? <laughs> You're mixing some very volatile chemicals, but you did fantastically. I just wanted well, to say thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. This was a great conversation. It got me to think about freedom um, once again. And um, hopefully I didn't confuse everyone too much. <laughs> well, there's a lot of heavy topics here. <laughs> let's say you did. Um, how I want to give you the any last words that you have, but also how people would contact you before I before I sign off here. If people are interested in learning more about Hindu teachings, um, we actually have a wonderful resource on our website. Uh, it's www.hinduamerican.org. And if they uh, drop down on the menu that says Hindus and Hinduism, there's a Hinduism 101, where a lot of these concepts are um, explained in in greater detail about karma, about dharma, about um, rebirth and um, and pluralism. So all of the things that I've talked about today, um, if people are curious, I welcome them, them to take a visit. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Suhag, again. It's just been fantastic. And listeners, I, I appreciate you joining with us. Uh, again, Patreon supporters, we can't do this without your support. We had a lot of great interaction today, a lot of views, and I just appreciate all you for tuning in. Please share if you found some value in it. Um, and, and, and just have a blessed rest of the day. I look forward to talking to you all next time. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. And you can find more great shows like this at wearelibertarians.com. Shows like We Are Libertarians with Chris Spangle, The Brian Nichols Show, The Boss Hog of Liberty, Now Hear This with Chris Spangle, Gingerarchy with Trisha Stewart Mann, and our training podcast, Upward, Libertarian Activism. All of these shows are supported by our patrons. If you'd like to become a Patreon member, visit wearelibertarians.com. Thank you so much for listening to this show. 